Hello, and welcome to the Sharpened Iron Podcast. I am happy to have you here. I started the Sharpened Iron blog in 2016 in order to build an online community that discussed the most important issues in life, religion, politics, and culture. In broadcasting my blog now, I hope to engage with friends old and new in pursuit of truth. If you like this episode or have any feedback, please leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Leave a comment on sharpenediron.org or email me directly at contact at sharpenediron.org. Let's jump in. Last week, I described how Mary's role as Ark of the New Covenant undergirds the rationale for Mary's centrality in Catholic worship. There were more hurdles between my recently blown evangelical mind and full-blown Catholic veneration of Mary, but Catholic Mariology seemed far more sensible to me after discovering her massive role in salvation history. I still had much to learn. As I continued to listen read and learn more about the Mother of God, I began to appreciate how her role in Christ's ministry correlated to His. I had no problem accepting the explicitly biblical idea that Jesus Christ was the new Adam, Romans 5, 12-21. Whereas Adam's disobedience brought death to the human race, Christ's obedience brought life. I knew that God had adopted repentant sinners as sons, making us brothers of Christ, Romans 8, 14 through 17 and 29. I had never concerned myself with the question of Mary's role in God's plan beyond the birth of our Lord. Despite my familiarity with the words of Scripture, there were many passages whose purpose and significance I did not understand. I read them respectfully but I essentially blew past them because I did not have a framework for understanding them. Some of those insignificant-seeming passages we discussed last week, the Annunciation and the Visitation in the Gospel of Luke. Until encountering Catholic Mariology, I had no idea why I should care that Christ's mother visited her cousin while they were both pregnant. It was Scripture, so I knew it was the Word of God, but I could not begin to understand why it mattered. When I first encountered the Catholic interpretation of those passages, I felt like I had found treasures that had been hidden from me for a long time. After learning about the parallels between the Ark of the Covenant and the Mother of Christ, I finally had some idea why Luke would include so much detail in his narrative leading up to Christ's birth. In a similar way, I had always wondered at the significance of this passage in the Gospel of John. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John nineteen twenty five through 27 Why did the Apostle John find these details so important to include? The best evangelical explanation I heard went something like this. 
Jesus was a good son of his mother. Because we believed Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus, and Jesus' biological brothers did not believe in him, see Mark 3, 20-35, Mary, in a sense, would be a childless widow upon Christ's death. Judaism, at the time, had a legal proceeding that allowed for the dying child of a widow to arrange for the care of his childless mother. Therefore, Jesus was making sure the earthly needs of his mother were met upon his death by bestowing the care of his mother upon John. This is why Christ giving his mother to John is important. It shows us how loving he was, even to his mother, while he hung on the cross. While of course Christ was a perfect son to his Father in heaven and his parents on earth, I could not be satisfied with the idea that the gospel so painstakingly laid out the details of this scene just to make a point about Christ fulfilling his duties as a son. Christ dying on the cross is the climax of the gospel narrative, and the turning point of all of history. Is a mere legal procedure really the point the apostle was trying to communicate to us? Near the end of his gospel, the apostle John writes, There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21.25 Why, of all the books that could be written about his master, did John choose to write about this? Dr. Brant Petrie once again showed up to blow my mind. In his excellent book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, Dr. Petrie explains so much of what I initially failed to understand about Mary. In this case, he points out that the words the Apostle carefully chose give us the key to the Gospel passage at issue. Beloved Disciple The Apostle uses this phrase repeatedly in his Gospel, and tradition holds that the Apostle John uses the term to refer to himself. Hence, in my childhood, I was taught that the gospel of John is the gospel of love. John everywhere emphasizes the love of Christ that he had for everyone, including the author himself, to the point of excluding his own name from the narrative he wrote. I still believe this is true, and I think a second insight into the term disciple whom he loved or beloved disciple will give us insight into the significance of John's narrative of Christ on the cross. John uses the term beloved disciple to show that Jesus did not give his mother only to John, but to all of Christ's beloved disciples, the church. No word of scripture is ever wasted. It is all God-breathed, and God does not waste his breath. Did Jesus want us to know that he loved his mother by caring for her needs in his final moments? Or did he want us to love his mother and take her into our own homes? The Catholic Church teaches the answer to that question is yes. Jesus fulfilled all the commandments. He honored his parents perfectly, even as a 12-year-old boy after three days without his parents in the Temple of Jerusalem. See Luke 2, 41-51. No one could more perfectly give honor to his parents than Christ did to Mary and Joseph. 
And we see that in Christ's care for his mother while he hung from a tree with nails in his hands and feet. Jesus, though, did not only care for his mother's physical needs after his death. After all but one of Christ's disciples fled the scene, we see Mary standing at the foot of the cross watching her son die. She persevered with him to the bitterest end. To the beloved disciple that remained at the cross, he gave his ever-faithful mother. Jesus' faithful and beloved disciple received Jesus' faithful and beloved mother from God's faithful and beloved son. In this way, Mary becomes our lady and mother of the church. Not content to stop there, Dr. Petrie demonstrates in his book, how the Gospel of John provides another insight into Mary's role in God's plan. After God created the heavens and the earth, plants, animals, and humans, our first parents, Adam and Eve, lived in a garden filled with pleasant things and in close communion with God. They had one command from God to keep on pain of death, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 1 and 2, God placed the man, Adam, at the pinnacle of creation. The man was given the right to name all the animals, and after seeing all that God created, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. From Adam's rib, God creates that helper, and Adam declares, She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Genesis 2, 22-23 One day Eve, with her husband beside her, eats from that forbidden tree. After being tempted by a snake that told her she would become like God if she ate from it, she eats and gives the fruit to her husband, who also partakes. Thereafter, humanity and all of creation are cursed by God for the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and the man and woman are sent away from the perfect Garden of Eden. Before banishing humanity from the garden, God addresses the deceitful serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 The heel-to-head relationship between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the snake promises hope of restoration. From that time forward, the children in Genesis were given names that declared that hope for restored communion between God and man and between man and all creation. Paralleling the Genesis narrative, the Gospel of John gives us insight into Mary's role in salvation history. The Apostle begins his Gospel recalling the famous words opening the creation narrative of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 1.1 This opening to the Gospel of John has so much depth and beauty that reveals the mystery of the nature of Christ. But for a long time, I missed the further parallelism between the first chapter of Genesis and the first two chapters of the Gospel of John. Genesis 1 continues with the famous seven-day creation narrative, ending each day with the phrase, And there was evening, and there was morning, the first, second, 
third day. After recalling the beginning of all things, the Apostle John writes, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. John 1, verses 29, 35, and 43. John's gospel narrative continues to parallel the seven-day creation narrative, here leaving us on the fourth day. Next, John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Three days after the fourth day brings us to the seventh day. On this day we see Jesus and Mary attending a wedding. In the Jewish context in which the gospel was written, the significance of the seventh day of creation was obvious. This was the Sabbath, the day God blessed and made holy by resting from his work of creation. Genesis 2, 3 and Exodus 20, verse 11. What happens in the Apostle John's new creation narrative? The hosts of the wedding run out of wine and Mary tells this to Jesus, whose public ministry has not yet begun. He responds to Mary, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She then says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. See John 2, verses 1 through 5. Christ's response, woman, once again recalls the creation narrative when God created woman from the side of Adam. Jesus then commands the servants to fill the water jars meant for Jewish ceremonial washings and tells them to bring the jars of water to the master of the feast. When the master tastes the wine, Jesus has miraculously changed the water into excellent wine. The Gospel of John, therefore, distinctly recalls the creation narrative, and on the seventh day of the new creation, we see a man and a woman at a wedding. In this new narrative, the woman does not give in to temptation or goad the man into sinning. She humbly requests his assistance and tells the servants, Do whatever he tells you. This new man blesses the seventh day with 180 gallons of wine and manifests his glory. Christ is the new Adam. The new Eve is Mary. Hence, about 140 years after this miracle, Irenaeus writes about Mary, Mary the Virgin is found obedient, saying, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Luke 1.38 But Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when as yet she was a virgin. And thus also it was that the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. For what the virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the virgin Mary set free through faith. Upon learning all this, I came to see Mary as the most important follower of Christ. Foreshadowed in the Old Testament by Eve, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Queen Mother of Israel, and given in the New Testament as mother of Christ's beloved disciple, she stands as a model of beauty and faith. The New Testament makes use of the Old to illuminate 
these striking images of Mary's role in God's plan of salvation. After I first saw the magnificent biblical imagery surrounding Our Lady, I re-examined what the scriptures do explicitly say about her. When invited by an angel to become the mother of Christ, she humbly submits and declares herself the handmaid of the Lord. Visiting Elizabeth, she declares, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. See Luke 1, 46-49. Awaiting Jesus' first miracle at the wedding, she tells the others, Do whatever he tells you. She is never portrayed as sinning or in any way rebelling against God's will, and she never points to herself for her own sake. She says yes to God's plan of salvation, no matter the cost to herself. She receives Jesus into her womb, brings him to others, raises him, follows him, suffers with him at the cross, receives the beloved disciple as her son, and devotes herself to prayer after Christ ascends to heaven. She never takes away from Jesus' glory, always leads others to him, and through her obedience, she allows God's plan of salvation to proceed to all the world to the praise of his glorious grace. For all Christians, she is the model disciple and worthy of honor. This concludes this episode of the Sharpened Iron Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast player to receive an update whenever a new episode is released. To receive updates about Sharpened Iron, subscribe to the blog by email at www.sharpenediron.org. If you have any questions, have recommendations for future discussion topics, or want to discuss anything further, please contact me at contact at sharpenediron.org. Thank you, and may God bless you as you seek the truth.